We might want to think on that a little bit tonight, given the passage. Yeah, this is just, we're starting to get into the meat of this. And, you know, it's really, I want to share this with you because I think it's so important. A lot of people look at the prophetic parts of Scripture and they're almost afraid of them. It's like, I don't want to read that. I don't want to know what's going to happen. My kids aren't going to get, you know, they're not going to be able to get married and have children. And I'm not going to have any grandbabies. And that's you ladies' point of view. Us guys are, I'll never be able to retire and I won't be able to play golf. And, you know, that the, the, whole, the whole prophetic part of Scripture. So very often when we look at it, we compare it to this earth. We're going, man, you know, if that happens, I mean, what happens to the earth? The good news is it gets better from there. It, it's not like it's a bad thing, you know. It's like, oh, you know, well, if we get raptured, I'll be in heaven, you know. It's like, Darn, you know. Like, I can't believe that would happen. You know, so as we read these passages of Scripture, and, and, and I recognize that sometimes when we're studying, especially as we get here to the rest of chapter 7 and on into the rest of the book of Daniel, uh, it is apocalyptic in places. And, but that apocalyptic literature and that apocalyptic word that the Lord would speak to us is to remind us to hold on lightly to the things of this earth. It's to remind us that the, this is as bad as it gets for us, and it gets better from here on out. It's to remind us that our goal, our task, is to, is to draw other people uh, to the precious blood of Christ, that they might be saved and enjoy the glories of heaven with you forever. Uh, it's to stimulate us as parents and as spouses, uh, as citizens in our nation. And so as we read these things, don't be afraid. Be encouraged, be lifted up, be strengthened. The Lord knows what he's doing. And because we know his character, even if he allows things to happen, that we look at it and go, that is a mega disaster. Even mega disasters from God's perspective are are a part of his loving plan for this world and for his people. And so as we, as we dig in, and especially next time we gather together, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation a bunch as, as we embark on this last section here of the book of Daniel. And as I shared with you before, the beginning parts of the book of Daniel up and through this chapter written in Aramaic, from here on out written in Hebrew. Uh, it's going to draw our attention now to the prophetic heart of the book of Daniel. And so as we begin to, to look at these things that are going to transpire tonight, the little horn, um, this world figure that's going to pop up on the scene. And so we're going to be looking at him tonight and then look at God's view from heaven uh, at the same time. And that is something you must remember. There is God's view from heaven and there is man's view from earth. And we re- need to remember whose kids we are. We're God's kids. And though the view from earth can be frightening at times, admittedly, the view from heaven is God still on the throne. He did not fall off the throne. He isn't overwhelmed by the evil in the world. He's not all of a sudden sitting there going, boy, I sure don't know how to handle this. I never thought they'd do that. I can't believe that they're that wicked now. God doesn't think those things. He knew exactly what the world would look like. He's known it from beginning. He knows it to the end, and he's going to be faithful to see it through. And so be encouraged tonight. We're going to pick up in chapter 7 and verse 8, and we're just going to look through verse 12 because there's so much meat here tonight. So 
Would you pray with me? Father God, as we come to the Ancient of Days, Lord, as we, as we offer this time to you, Lord, we know that uh, your throne is in heaven, but where we are gathered, you're there in the midst, and so we know you're here. We know the Spirit is at work in this church right now. Lord, to will and to do as is your good pleasure. We know that we're your kids, that we're saved by grace, and you've given us faith to believe. And we pray that you just strengthen that faith tonight. Encourage us, we pray, to live lives that are well-pleasing to you. Bless us as we study. Commit these things to our knowing and to our memory, that we might uh, hold these things in, in our hearts and our minds as we see that day approaching, that we would know how we should live. And so, God, we bless you. We thank you for this evening and pray now that you would bless us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 here in Daniel 7. And as we saw last time, these world empires have passed, passed through Daniel's vision. Uh, he's seen, in essence, the course of world history. Uh, the final kingdom, so far as the ancient kingdoms, has already come on the scene. That would be the kingdom of Rome. There is a kingdom that is yet to come that will be revived out of that Roman kingdom, and that is where we pick up. And as I was considering the horns, the ten horns, as he's looking at this beast that is the culmination, in essence, of all of those prior uh, world kingdoms and those rulers associated with them, he's taken into account that there was a... Uh, Babylonian kingdom, that there was a medium Persian kingdom, that there was a Grecian kingdom, there's a Roman kingdom. This beast is now in view, and he looks at it, and here this, this beast that appears to be a culmination of all of those things put together. And so we do believe that in the very last days that there will be a kingdom that will come together. It will be a consortium of nations. It will represent, in essence, all of those kingdoms to some degree. It will have a little bit of each of them. Uh, that process was started by the Romans. It's something you need to know about history. The Romans, when they took over an area, they didn't take it over just simply militarily. They brought in the, the concepts. They brought in the art. They brought in... Uh, the language of that area. They brought in Roman culture. They brought in Greek culture. They brought in Babylonian culture. They brought in media Persian culture. They inculcated all of those things into a single, cohesive, in essence, governing system that ultimately would birth the Roman Catholic Church. And ultimately, that kingdom has progressed, and as now we see it kind of in recession, it went into decline, it ended uh, with the final Caesar, and so now we're waiting for this beast, in essence, to reappear, for it to begin to take shape on the world stage. So we are actually seeing, I believe, the, the forming, if you will, of this, this beast that will come upon the earth, uh, that I believe is going to be representative largely of the European Union and that ultimately will have a type of government that will include these ten horns. Three of them will be plucked out, and now we get to the little horn. And while I was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one. And a reason, I, the reason that I personally believe that the distinction here is made as a little horn is because it's a singular person. It is an actual singular person. The rest of them represented a king and a kingdom. This one represents a singular person. It's a guy. It is a man. 
coming up from among them, and before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. They ceased to exist. And so, and there, in this horn, and so he begins to speak of this singular little horn that comes out of the remnant of the ten horns, that is certainly, because of what we know about world history, would be multinational, multiracial, multicultural, and very attractive to the entire world. As you begin to look at how this is described, and there in this horn, in other words, in that individual person, were the eyes like the eyes of man. In other words, there's intellect. There is the ability to communicate. We use the, the phrase that the eyes are the window to the soul. That as you stare into someone's eyes, very often you can actually communicate that way. You can even think of what they're thinking. It's not always accurate, but we say that the eyes are the windows to the soul. It's a very similar phraseology here in the original language. And notice a mouth speaking pompous words. And it's interesting here when you look at what's being said because of where this king comes from, this seemingly insignificant, he's little, seemingly not too terribly important because there's, there's, he seems to have come out of everything else. And we look at the world around us and very often it's hard to see the rise of a world leader. I think, and I'm going to use our current president as an example to you. And I'm not trying to say I believe he's the Antichrist. But I am going to say to you that when you look at someone like that, who comes from basically nowhere, he has a background that's somewhat nondescript at best, contested at worst. You look at somebody who comes kind of an unconventional way, by way of Indonesia, ultimately saying he's born in Hawaii. This is the type of picture that you have in this little horn. There's not really a situation that you could, you could look at and completely compare it to, but apparently from pretty much nowhere. And all of a sudden, he's there in the midst of this, and in the midst of that situation begins to speak what are boastful or pompous words. It's as if, coming up out of it, somehow he's been empowered to say things that other people have never said. And so he is very, very, very important. And so the last time, as we left off with that revived Roman Empire, here comes this leader that comes up out of it. And of course, that would eliminate, in essence, what, what I believe is in play today because this consortium of nations hasn't fully formed, but I believe it's very well underway. And so verse 8 says in the New Living Translation, which I'll read from now, while I was thinking about the horns, there was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and the first three horns were uprooted, and that's a better word, I believe. Literally, their time was done, and so they were pulled out. The picture here is actually gardening, like you would find a plant that's basically dead. It's no longer functioning. So it's showing that in this group of nations that are gathered together under a common leadership with ten ruling kings, that there will be some that will be removed from it. In other words, they're no longer part of it. So it gives you a picture of a rather fluid global situation. And I believe that is the fluid global situation 
that exists already on the earth today. Do I believe the Antichrist is, is here on this earth? Not necessarily, but I do believe that it is possible that he's alive even now. And so, the horn had the eyes like the eyes of man, and notice in the New Living it says, a mouth that spoke boastfully. In other words, I have power that you need. I have the ability to solve problems that you have. This little horn comes up, uh, the eyes like the eyes of man. It kind of suggests that this king is an intellectual genius, that he has penetrating insight, that he has the ability to captivate an audience, that he's one of those very gifted speakers. And yes, it does sound like President Obama, but I do not believe it's him. So let's try not to take that too terribly far. And that mouth spoke boastfully, suggested he has pervasive oratory skills, that he blasphemes God while he's doing it, that he has the ability to capture the attention of masses of people. This will be a political ruler chiefly initially. And so this this rise of the Antichrist, if you will, the little horn that's being spoken of, will be chiefly at its beginning uh, a way to solve the world's problems. In other words, the world's going to be a mess, and a ruler is going to come up out of the world, and that ruler is going to appear to have the answer to everything that ails us. The good news is for the church, by the time he is shown, we will not be here. Hallelujah and thank you, Jesus. Because the church is going to be gone. And in fact, I believe the rapture of the church will actually be the the turning point that will cause the Antichrist to be revealed ultimately. Because the stage will then be set. Look, those rotten Christians are off the earth. You know, they've been a problem all along. If they weren't so narrow-minded and bigoted, and now they're all gone, and they had this mass extinction event, and we don't know what happened, but they're not here. Their bodies were left, but they're all dead. And the world is going, now we can really push forward with globalism. We can move on to that one world economy, and we're just going to have a single religion, and it's going to appeal to everybody. We'll just coexist. We'll drag everybody in together. We're all going to believe the same. We're all going to have the same money, and we're going to have the same government. Now tell me that if a man came on the scene right now and had the ability to communicate in an articulate way, a vision to bring about world peace and a world economic solution and to solve the religious problems of the globe, tell me that person wouldn't immediately become very powerful. And so we can see that the world is already ripening, if not fully ripened, for someone like this to come on the scene. The the problems that we have are being discussed in a global sense. When our ambassador was killed in Benghazi, where did our president go to apologize? To the United Nations. He did not apologize to the American people. He apologized to the United Nations. That's the type of thing that the world says, wow, this is awesome. You know, somebody that finally gets it. We are a global community. And and to some degree, I want to make sure that I'm very careful here. We are. All around the world, our brothers and sisters are out there fighting the good fight just as we are here. And every person on this earth, from God's perspective, is someone that Christ died for. And so we do have a global responsibility, and that's why the Great Commission is a global commission. 
But there will be a ruler that's going to come along and say, you know what, Christianity's a problem. We need a different kind of religion. We want to make sure Christianity is accepted, and we want to make sure that Islam is accepted. We want to make sure that Hinduism is accepted. And you know what? Even the animists will bring them in. And, you know, Mormons really are Christians anyway, so we'll bring them in. And he's going to say, you know what? Man, isn't it time that we got off the dollar standard? Haven't we been on the dollar standard for too long? And, you know, the euro, that was a good thing too, but that's only in Europe. Don't we need something that's bigger? And then all of a sudden, the only way to administrate that, and that's why these words are pompous, it has to be through a single person. Because if you give every country the equivalent vote, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. That's why the UN has absolutely zero real power. Because everybody looks after their own, and as they look after their own, they may agree in principle, but in action they do not agree. And so it's going to take a global leader. And so this man will rise up, the little horn. We're going to see him in chapter 11 called the willful king. First Thessalonians calls, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2 calls him the man of lawlessness. He is the same guy. You know him, I know him as the Antichrist. There in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 it begins, Don't anyone deceive you while you're in the way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Now think about this for a second. For the rise of the Antichrist, for the little horn to come on the scene, the whole world needs to rebel against God. What's going on right now? Our nation, the most Christian nation on earth, is rebelling against God. Matter of fact, we're declaring very loudly that we would rather have sin than we want God's provision and hand to be upon us. Until that rebellion occurs, that apostasy occurs, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man who is doomed ultimately to destruction, underline that, he's a short-lived flash in the pan. He's going to be on the world scene for a very short period of time. We know that he'll be on the scene for at least seven years. But he's not going to be around for a long period of time. He has a singular purpose. Ultimately, God will actually use him as part of his, God's plan to, to end the world as we know it and bring about his kingdom age. And he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything, notice that, that is called God or is worshipped. He will literally impose his own will to be worshipped actually as God. And isn't that kind of the way the world's going right now? When you look at the world around you, the world is looking for somebody to come on the stage that kind of takes care of all of these things because you kind of have the religious group, amen? And you kind of have the monetary and the material group, amen? And then you have the political group, and those three groups are actually opposing one another because the political group doesn't get along with the religious group, the religious group doesn't get along with the material group, and so you need somebody to come in there, and the only way that that happens is if they are so attractive that they are literally worshipped for those three component parts. What a crazy thing that would be. The world is being set up for it. So that he sets himself up. Notice this. Underline it. Because it's a missing chunk of the puzzle. It's one of the reasons we know he's not actually uh, at this place yet. He sets himself up in God's temple and proclaims himself to be God. So we know that in the last days, 
There will be a single ruler who will be known as the little horn, the willful king, the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, the one who comes to do Satan's bidding, not Satan himself, but Satan's minion, Satan's man, if you will, on the earth, that will set himself up to be worshipped as God, and he's going to do it in Jerusalem in the rebuilt temple that is not there yet. So one of the important parts of all of this, of the rise of the Antichrist, and by the way, that temple could be rebuilt rather quickly. The Temple Mount Faithful and many other groups have been planning that for decades now and could do it really if given the opportunity almost instantaneously. And so as that happens, this king is going to set himself up literally in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He will become so powerful that people will say, whoever the God was the Christians worshipped, not as big as this guy. Whoever the God was of the monetary group, not as big as this guy. Whoever the God was of all the political kingdoms that have ever existed, not as big as this guy. And so he'll be worshipped. He'll be satanically inspired according to Revelation chapter 13. And it says there that men worship the dragon. That would also be the Antichrist because he had given authority to the beast and they worship the beast and ask who is like the beast and who can make war against him that this beast who is the Antichrist, excuse me, the dragon is Satan, the beast is the Antichrist. The Antichrist all of a sudden is, is now on the scene and there is no one like him and there has never been anyone like him. Now think on that for a moment. Think on all the great pharaohs. Think on Nebuchadnezzar. Think on the Seleucid rulers of Greece. Think on the power of the United States of America and the president of the United States of America. Nothing compared to this guy. This guy is unlike anyone who's ever shown up on the face of the earth. Who can make war against him? The reason I know that this person is not here and has never been here is because of the statements that we find in, in, throughout Daniel and also in the book of Revelation. Because, quite frankly, someone could make war against the United States of America, and they could do it rather effectively. If China actually decided to attack us and Russia joined with them, they could very easily take the United States of America. Hate to, hate to burst everybody's bubble, but they have combined military strength sufficient to do the task. We have gutted our military, we have reduced the size of our armed forces, and China by itself has a, already a two million, over 200 million man standing army. So you get a rogue nation like Korea launches a few nukes because they're just nutcases anyway. All of a sudden China sees an opportunity, well, L.A. is gone, Washington's gone. We shoot down a few of them. There has never been a ruler like this, ever. Rome was eventually dealt with. Babylon, in, not in existence. Media Persia, I've got a friend right now that's in Tehran. It is not a magnificent kingdom. vast majority of the nation lives in poverty. They saber-rattle, and yes, they do have the capability to do tremendous amounts of damage, especially I'd be really afraid if I was Saudi Arabia, because they're a scant 65 miles away across the Straits of Hormuz. But there's never been a guy like this. 
And the unfortunate part of this, and the reason I started the way I did, is because your Bible does not forecast the world getting better throughout time. It doesn't forecast world peace. It doesn't forecast equality for all of mankind. It does not forecast that in the latter days we're all just going to live in absolute harmony all over the globe. It forecasts exactly the opposite. Here's the good news. It's exactly what we have. So what it tells us is the Bible's right and mankind is wrong. That God knew what he was doing, said what he was going to do, told us what it would look like, and we're seeing it. So it should be an encouragement to us. Uh, the progressive evolution, social advancement uh, that we hear shouted out as a mantra of society right now are the illusions of the evil one himself. That ultimately mankind can solve all the problems that ail the world is a falsehood. It can't happen. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek new medical advancements. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't attempt to live in peace. It does not mean that we shouldn't do all that we can to love those who hate us. Those things are all commanded by the Lord. But they're not the solution. And it will be the search of those things that opens the door for the little horn to rise. Mankind will get so close to that that mankind will go, Look, here he is. Here's the guy we've been waiting for. Finally, someone to bring about world peace. Finally, someone to bring us all together. Finally, someone to redistribute all of the world's wealth so that everybody has what they need. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Don't you think the world will be looking at that and going, that's way better than what that freedom stuff they have in America? Well, that's not equal. This guy is going to truly bring about for a time... For exactly three and a half years, your Bible says, world peace, economic equality, and the joining together of the hands of the ecumenical world so that we are all together in one religion. But it won't last long. Over the horizon, I believe, uh, very shortly from the days that we're living in, uh, this fourth beast and this little horn, I think, are very close to making themselves known. Some people take this passage of Scripture and they try and literalize it to a single ruler, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, uh, a Grecian Seleucid ruler that, that came on the scene. There's a couple of real serious problems with that thought process, and here they are. First, you cannot pinpoint at any time in world history ten successive kings. These kings came one right after another. There is no time in human history where that has ever occurred. So that makes it not that it was a ruler from almost 1,500 years ago. The second thing is that Jesus announced long after Antiochus' death that that abomination that causes desolation was attributed to the book of Daniel. Jesus said that. And Daniel attributes it to this little horn that is still yet future. And so from Jesus' perspective and from the prophetic word of God, it's still future. Thirdly, and this is the one that's huge, if it had been Antiochus Epiphanes 
And we had been living, because he was alive, excuse me, in the second century B.C., if he was, if he was the guy, if he was the little horn, uh, I can tell you this, the kingdom of God has not existed on the earth. That is what's supposed to follow the rise of this little horn. So if there is no kingdom of God on this earth, if you can't look around and see the things that the book of Isaiah describes, that the book of Revelation describes in great detail, that the lamb will lie down with the lion, that the saints will rule and reign uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, that in fact the world goes through a massive battle, that the culmination of that is that two-thirds of the world's population is completely wiped out, that hasn't ever happened. And so the little horn is still yet to come. The Antichrist is still to rise. And so he'll be a world power. He will remain on the scene for a short period of time. Uh, The book of Daniel reveals the names of those previous empires. It's interesting to me that it does not reveal the names uh, of the leader of either the Roman Empire or the revived Roman Empire. And so we're still looking for the name of that individual. Gives you another hint that it's still not been revealed. It was purposely left as a blank to fill in at a later date. And instead, this prophecy focuses in uh, on what I believe is the remnants of the, of the Roman Empire and a ruler that is yet to come. Uh, if you remember, the, the, realistically, the Roman Empire faded from its majority existence, uh, unified. Uh, it, it lasted until about a 1,000 years A.D., you can say that the Roman Empire was, was still in existence. But it really didn't begin until about 14 A.D. under Augustus when it was unified as a whole. But it never reached the level to where those particular rules, rulers were all unified. Each country, and that's why you have Europe the way it is, each country in essence maintained its own identity. It just simply had the benefit of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They built a road system. They brought in uh, abilities to, to transport water and invented aqueducts and all those kind of things. But as far as ruling them, they didn't rule that way. If you were in a region that was Gaul, you were still a Gaulish person. If you were a Celt, you remained a Celt. You were just a Roman Celt. And so this guy is going to do something completely different. And it parallels, I believe, the old Roman Empire, but it's going to contain, I believe, remnant pieces of every last world empire that's ever existed. Some of them, three, will be plucked out. Uh, That second phase of the construction, if you will, the feet, the ten toes of the Roman Empire will pave the way for the Antichrist to come and bring in that false religion. Right now, those areas of the world that are mentioned are largely Muslim. They are being, every day as we speak, being inculcated with further Muslim influence. The, the good news is, it doesn't say that he's going to be Muslim either. And so we believe that it will ultimately bring all of these rulers together. Now we come to the future from God's perspective a little bit, and I want to link together a little bit, if you will, uh, Daniel 7 to Revelation 17. And so we have Daniel verse, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. Uh, we have the, the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom that's going to appear on the earth. You're going to have the ten horns. You're going to have another king that's going to come through and subdue those kings. We're going to see more of this in, in verse 23 and 25. And now Revelation chapter 17, and notice this, verses 8 through 11. 
and the beast. And so here's where the Antichrist is called the beast. So he's the willful king. He's the lawless one. Uh, it says the beast, which you saw. Now notice this. Once was and now is not. Will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not noticed this, been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, and now is not, and yet will come. And so he is going to have supernatural power. Apparently he's going to be risen from the dead, so to speak. Wouldn't that just kind of ice the cake if you were a world-governing power and all of a sudden you could mimic exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus? In fact, you received a wound, you died from it, and you came back from the dead. I'm pretty much thinking, hey, look, Christ, he's back. I believe the Antichrist will actually be confused with the real Christ initially. I think people will think, hey, this is just God doing it again. This calls, it says, for the mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven hills upon which the women sit, and there's also seven kings. Five have fallen, and one is. The other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while, and the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. For he belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. So it gives the same picture of the of the remnant kingdoms of the world. And if you look at this from a biblical perspective, the in Daniel chapter seven, the first three horns, in essence, are are plucked out, replaced by the Antichrist, which puts you in line with Revelation seventeen, because the five that are fallen We know, because they're not actually all mentioned, but you have Egypt, Assyria, then you have Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and ancient Rome. And so you have the ones that have fallen. In other words, they weren't even mentioned, because when Daniel was written, they were already gone. But what you have left is the exact same ones that are in Daniel chapter 7. And so the revival will happen. Uh, Those nations will come together. They will begin to spout their spiel, if you will, about world unification. And it's interesting to me that when you look at those, that would encompass, because of the spread of Islam, and hear what I'm saying, I'm not trying to be anti-Islamic here, but because of the spread of Islam, everywhere in the world, you actually have a vehicle whereby this world government, if you will, would have a real place. Because everywhere that Islam has gone to this very day, it is actually still viewed, in essence, as a problem in the nations it's in. You ask, ask Brits how they feel about Islam now that they said, ah, no big deal. Ask the French how they, ah, no big deal. Ask the Danish people, ah, no big deal, you know, just come on in. This guy seems to be able to draw all of those world religions together. Nobody is doing that right now. So this guy is yet to come. Having said that, we're going to get more when we get to the latter part of this chapter. And so now we switch in verse 9, and we'll look at the rest of these verses that are before us tonight. Notice, and it says, okay, so this guy comes on the scene. If you left it there, we're all freaking out. We're going to go look for the Antichrist. We're going to be wandering around, you know, I think he's, you know, there's been more guesses of who the Antichrist is. I mean, it's been Brezhnev and all the Russian czars and, you know, everybody has been the Antichrist. The only problem is he's never taken the entire world, brought them together. Verse 9, and I watched till the thrones were put in place. 
ultimately, behind the scenes, even when the Antichrist rises, even when mankind has done absolutely everything it can to exalt itself, to tell God to take a hike, we don't want you anymore, we're following this new guy, this vision now is after what Daniel sees as the rise of the Antichrist. And he is powerful. He's spouting boastful words. Hey, I can take on God. Kind of sounds like Satan. Amen? In Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High God. I will exalt my throne above the heavens. So a similar mentality to Satan himself, and yet not Satan himself, because it's divided up there in Revelation chapter 13. It's a different person. And so this different person, from God's perspective, I want you to notice what God does. And I watched till the thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. There's only one person that could be, and that is God himself. He is the Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the one that has always existed. He is the Ancient of Days. He was before time. He will be after time. He created time so that we could walk in it. That's why the book of Genesis says, in the beginning. God actually created a beginning because he lived outside of it. We needed a reference to the world that we live in, and so he creates time, but he is beyond time. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels were a burning fire. And a fiery steam issued and came forth from before him, and thousand thousands ministered to him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. Amen and hallelujah. God's still the king of the universe. And in spite of the rise of the Antichrist and mankind shaking his fist, and we're saying, man, we finally did it. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was right. There is no God. And I don't care what you say. We've got this guy now. And, and I happen to believe with absolutely everything within me, the Antichrist, just like Satan, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be tall, dark, and handsome. He's probably going to be multilingual. He's going to be one of those guys everybody sees him and goes, man, we have been waiting for this guy. From God's perspective, he says, hey, could you just bring my throne over here and set it down? Because i got this under control. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, God is always watching. Your Bible declares that he never sleeps nor does he slumber. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't need paid time off. He isn't, you know, retiring to another part of the universe. He is always on duty. And he always has a plan. And that plan is never out of play. And Satan can only do what God allows. The Antichrist will also only be able to do what God allows. And ultimately, God always has the final word. And so it says, and I watched because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was speaking. He says, hmm, it is that time. My plan is unfolding. And so he's watching. And it says, and I watched till the beast was slain. Don't you love that? So from man's perspective on earth, here's the rise of this world ruler. That world ruler appears to have the answer to mankind's issues. He appears to be attractive to everyone. He appears to be 
absolutely successful at drawing mankind together, unifying mankind, and providing everything that mankind wants. And he says, the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to burning flame. From God's perspective, he says, ain't no big thing. He's not just going, oh, man, I can't believe that happened. Wow, this guy's really powerful. And I love the fact that from God's perspective, this is severely matter of fact. Think about it. From God's perspective, he says, set up my throne. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take a look. This guy's speaking these pompous words. I have said this would occur. I'm watching. And from God's perspective, all he sees is the destruction of the Antichrist. Done, over with, finished. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. And their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Interesting. Because what your Bible says is ultimately when the Antichrist is destroyed, that the Lord will actually come back, fight the battle of Armageddon. There will be a thousand years of reign of Christ on the earth. Peace will ensue. But these guys are not actually dealt with until the great white throne judgment after that thousand years. In Revelation chapter 19, the books will be opened. And so this is a preview, if you will, of things to come. But he's saying, I'm going to give these guys this thousand years. So when we talk about the thousand year reign of Christ, we know that mankind will still have the capacity to choose to sin. But they will be forced to be righteous. And that's why at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released for one last go at everybody who's on the earth. You will have had people who were born during the tribulation. You will have tribulation saints that are still on the earth when the Lord comes back to fight the battle of Armageddon. Children will no doubt be the product of that. And everyone, for it is all of us that one day must make the choice whether to believe and receive or to deny and die. Amen? That's your choice. Believe, receive, deny, die. That's the choice. You can either face the second death or you can have eternal life. That's the choice. Everybody gets that choice, even those who make it through the tribulation, who live on into the thousand-year reign of Christ, will ultimately still have to make the choice, even though it will be very difficult to say, well, no, I think I'll take the devil. And so we have the scene changing from the terrestrial, from the rise of this world ruler, to, from, in essence, from earth to heaven. But God's not going, oh, my, the rise of the Antichrist. Oh my, they finally figured out how to, you know, their, the social media has finally done it. Man, the Antichrist got eight and a half million tweets a second. He's got a Facebook following of 84 jillion people. God's not just, oh man, oh man, I, people are going to vote for him, and I, I know I'm going to have to put more money in my political campaign to win people back to Christ. He, See, from a human perspective, that would be our response. Amen? We'd, what are we going to do? This is another picture why I believe the church is not there. Because Christians would know exactly what to do. For they that wait on the Lord will be renewed in strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. We're, we wouldn't be worried either. I don't want to be here when that happens. That's why I encourage everybody, if you have not made a decision to follow Christ... 
to give your life to him, if you're banking on the tribulation to get saved, you are a nutcase. Because the first three and a half years are going to look really good. The second three and a half years, hell like has never been seen on this earth. And so from God's perspective, mankind's going, Yay, we finally got rid of all religion. We're all in it together. And we realize that was a bunch of baloney. From mankind's perspective, wow, you know, I now get a check from the World Bank. And the cool thing is I don't even have to carry cash with me. I just scan my forehead when I go get groceries. That's why when those technologies are developing right now, I'm going, I'll keep my wallet, thank you very much. I don't want to be scanning nothing. No chip, no scanning for Jeff. Good news is what it actually says is those who will receive the mark of the beast will be able to buy and sell. The good news is those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ won't be around for it. You won't need that mark because you ain't going to be here. Hallelujah. My Bible says, for he has not appointed us under wrath, but unto salvation. I'm planning on going to heaven. Vision, I believe, contains the most descriptive picture of the first person of the Trinity found in your entire Bible. I don't think there's a greater one than this. Notice what it says about him. He's seated. Uh, it shows his righteousness and the pure whiteness. His hair, wisdom is absolutely... This is why when, you, when people draw pictures of God, this is what they think they see. Seated on a throne. I would remind you that this is the same type of vision that Isaiah saw. It's the same vision that we see in Revelation. It's the same vision and the same description of wisdom that we see in the book of Proverbs. It's the same fire of holiness that we see in the Psalms and in the book of Exodus. It's the same guy, except he's seated in the heavens where he has always been. He dwelt with the children of Israel as a flame and as a fire. So parts of these pictures we can see that God has shown, in essence, people throughout time. Here's kind of what I'm like. But that's why Scripture says that no man can see God and live, because the fullness of his glory would destroy us. In our unrighteousness, it wouldn't survive. You'd just fry. You'd gone. His throne was a flaming fire. Its wheels were ablaze. If you were with us in our study of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw the same exact vision. He said, I saw the, the chariot of fire flaming, its wheels turning. It was like a rainbow. And so God's omnipotent, omniscient presence sitting there in the heavens going, it's time. The plans run its course. And I want you to think on this for a minute because that's God's position in all of this. From our position, it seems as though we have all these choices that ultimately are dictating the course of humanity. Do you realize from God's perspective, none of it is true? We're, we're not the masters of our own destiny. We never have been. And though the choices you make, to some degree, play into God's plan, God's plan was set before the foundations of the world. doesn't mean that your choices don't matter. But it does mean that his plan is going to be carried out no matter what choices you make. 
And so ultimately, what will happen is when we reach the end of days, mankind will be going, we've finally done away with God, and God will actually say, no, you haven't done away with me, you've just opened the door for me to finally do what I've always been going to do, which is to erase sin permanently from the face of the earth. And so he, in and of himself, declaring that their eternal destiny, which, by the way, is exactly what Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 says, their eternal destiny destiny is a blazing lake of fire. It's always been their eternal destiny. The good news is that from God's perspective, he doesn't want anybody to go there. Hence the age of grace being at this point in time 2,000 years long. God's been tarrying for 2,000 years, waiting for man after man and woman after woman, mankind on itself to to turn and say, you know what, we we made a mistake, we repent, and we call upon your name, and we want to be saved. We don't want to be in that lake of fire. I don't want to get anywhere near, near hell. From God's perspective, he's simply been giving opportunity for men to repent. For humankind to go, you know what, I've blown it. I realize I'm not the master of my own destiny. That's why Jesus is the Lord, amen? Jesus is both Savior, in other words, he does the work of salvation, he imparts righteousness to us, and he is Lord. That means master. From man's perspective, man is master. And if I have a little bit left, maybe I give some of that to God. From God's perspective, he's always been master. He's simply been waiting for mankind to acknowledge it. Say, do you believe me? Will you receive me? See, from God's perspective, it's never been out of control. He sees every war as tragic, but he also sees it has a purpose. He sees every child that's abused as monumentally horrific, but he also sees that it has a purpose. Because whatever God allows, he allows for a purpose. And as senseless as our minds deem it, and it is senseless, and as cruel as it is, and it is cruel, and as horrific as those things are, and they are horrific, from God's perspective, they're still not outside of the grasp of grace. He's not going, oh, no, I don't know what to do. I can't believe that happened. You know, how could they get like that? He is known from day one, and he still sent Jesus to die for us. Think about it. It's actually a picture of how large his grace is. If you had an only son and you were God and you knew the end, would you have sent Jesus into the world to die for us? I wouldn't. I would have just made a new world. I would have. I'm just being honest. I'd have looked at the world, see the beginning, see the end, see what man's going to do. I'd have looked at all the tragedy. I'd have looked at the people that died from disease. I would have looked at every war. I would have seen all that stuff and I said, no, no that's just not going to happen. But from God's perspective, because he loves mankind that much, he's even willing to allow us all of that choice to do the wrong thing that some would be saved. That to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. He said, if you'll just believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. You said, let him rule. Everybody gets that chance. And so this is a picture, I believe, of the great white throne judgment carries on into Revelation chapter 20. And the books are opened. And I believe that's really uh, three separate sets of books. 
There's the book of life. That's the Lamb's book of life in which are inscribed all of the names of those who have received the Lord. Your name's etched there. And it's interesting. You'll notice that we've already seen that it appears those names have been written since before time began. God, in his foreknowledge, his marvelous understanding of the world's events, certainly would know which names are going to be in there and which ones are not. And so I believe, personally, that everyone's name has a chance to be there, and if you don't receive him, your name's erased. Everyone's name is not found written. For God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance. So if he never gave you a chance to be saved... If you were in some part of the world that there was never an opportunity for you to receive, I don't see how God could possibly have ever wanted everyone to be saved. And so I believe you start there and your name's blotted out. And that's what Scripture says to those whose names were blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Starts there and gets blotted out. So it's really the ones that remain, the ones that have chosen the narrow road. The second set of books is the book of the deeds of men. Because we know that God does keep track for the purpose of rewarding the faithful and condemning the damned. You see, for those who are faithful, that book is a book of rewards. And for those who will get to see that at the Bema Seat of Christ, one day you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for the things that you've done. And if they're wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to burn. But if they're gold and silver, they're going to result in a crown that you'll be able to toss at the feet of Jesus and say, Worthy is the Lamb. But for those who find nothing but bad deeds in that book, it's just going to be the evidence against you that you belong in the lake of fire. That's a bad thing. Scripture says that's the second death. That's why we say if you're born twice, you only die once. That second birth is the opportunity to have that list of things be not counted against you, but whatever remains to count for you. And then finally, of course, it's what we call the Bibles, especially the Old Testament, because the, the Jewish people by faith believed in the Messiah before they ever saw him. And so the Lord will, will pull out those books and say, how'd you do? And if your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's enter into my kingdom of rest. And if it's not found there, it's depart for I've never known you. So it's a choice that we make. And from heaven's perspective, what God is saying is, is I want everyone to make the right choice. And, and I give opportunity, I give time, I'm suffering long so that people can make that choice. Chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. Man, can you ever, um, have you ever thought about what it will be like to see God? Man, Lord, I'm not worthy. I can't even look on you. But by grace, you're going to be able to. You're going to be able to look in the face of Jesus in heaven. That is mind-boggling. After all he's done for us. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God in the books. Notice it's plural, and it's plural also in the Greek language. And the books were opened. And another book was opened which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And so those three sets of books, the book of life, the book that contains the list of the deeds of men, and the scriptures themselves, how did you stack up to those things? 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And so all of those people that have been waiting since day one to be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. You receive the Lord, you die, you're in the presence of the Lord. But not so for those who don't know the Lord. They have been awaiting this judgment all that time. They've been there in Abraham's bosom waiting for God to open up the books. And they were judged, and each one according to his work. And death and Hades, in other words, now the abiding place of the dead, Hades, Sheol, wrapped up, death itself, because Jesus said he defeated death, amen? So as you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you defeat death too. But not so for those who don't know the Lord. They have not defeated death. They haven't taken that second look at it and said, you know what, I need to be born again. And so notice what it says. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So everything that was being held for judgment and all of death itself. That's why scripture declares that in that eternal kingdom, there's no dying, there's no death. Not going to happen anymore. It's all going away. For this is, it says there in the end of verse 14, the second death. That's why we say, To be born twice is to die once. To be born once is to die twice. That's the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is the goal of the Antichrist, is to fill up hell. That's the goal of Satan, to fill up hell. That's the goal of this world system and all demonic forces is to fill up hell. He wants the lake of fire full. That's why the world's so attractive. That's why globalism is so attractive. That's why world religions gathering together is so attractive. That's why monetary redistribution so that everybody's equal is so attractive because it appears to negate the need for God. And if you don't need to be saved then ultimately you will perish. If you believe that lie, you are going to end up in the lake of fire. You will face the second death. And so what the Lord is is sharing with us is that we want to see people saved. We don't want them to be around for the rise of the Antichrist. Amen? We, We want them to be there in the throne room of God as part of those thousands of thousands and tens of thousands of tens of thousands. Because guess who those are? That would be you and me and those who love the Lord and the angels of heaven, all gathered around the throne of God saying, Holy is the Lamb. But there is another option. And I pray that there isn't anybody you know, and there is certainly no one in this room, who flirts with that second death. Because the Antichrist, when he rises, is going to make it look like he's got the winning hand. It's going to look like he has it all together. The only problem is he doesn't have anything together. He will come just like his boss, Satan, to kill, maim, and destroy. He will come with lying wonders. He will come with deception. He will come with globalism. He will come with a one-world religion. And he will come with a one-world monetary system saying, follow me. And where you will follow him 
should you choose to do that, is straight into the pit of hell. Make sure your friends don't go there. Make sure your family doesn't go there. Make sure the people know that there is an option to choose, and they don't want to choose it. If they choose that second birth, which keeps you from the second death. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord, which reminds, reminds us what we've been saved from. Lord, your wrath one day will be poured out on this earth, but your desire is that no man go through that wrath, that no man see the depths of despair that will be an eternity separated from you in hell. And Father, I want to pray if there's anybody here tonight and they have never invited you into their hearts, they've never said yes to the sacrifice that you, Jesus, made on Calvary's cross, that we might be saved, that our names would be forever enshrined in the book of life. Lord, that we wouldn't be blotted out, but we'd be in. And we pray that, God, you would just reach into those hearts tonight and convince and convict of sin and of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we would simply just acknowledge who you are and your forgiveness through your shed blood, that we would choose to walk with you all of our days, Lord, and be saved. Be saved from this very thing. And so, God, we bless you for that picture of you in heaven. Lord, not off your throne, but on your throne. Lord, not powerless, but all-powerful. Lord, not wanton, but full of glory. And so, God, we just pray that you would bless us as your people. Anoint us, Lord, to be powerful witnesses for your kingdom on this earth. Lord, help us to be bold with our faith in in these last days, God. We don't know how much time we have. That trumpet could sound tonight, the dead in Christ could rise, and we who are alive and remain could meet you in the air tonight. And so, Lord, we we recognize that you looking from heaven are just simply waiting to that very moment when these things will begin to unfold. Lord, help us to be busy about your business while we do that waiting. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.